I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sacrifice your footing for a killing stroke. What's conducting the electricity? Our bodies, Mr. Angiora, quite capable of conducting and indeed producing energy. I apologize. There simply is too much magic. The good cop, bad cop routine. Not exactly. Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This is part two of uh, mine and Jack Howard's rundown of uh, all 10 Christopher Nolan movies so far, and not including Tenet, which obviously hasn't been released yet in order now we started this uh, on the last podcast as we thought it was going to be one podcast and we were going to work down from number 10 to number one and we'd each call and out i did a big rant about interstellar that's, that's right jack went off on one about interstellar and we decided to turn it into two podcasts so if you haven't heard the first podcast please do go back and uh, you know download it and listen to it because it's uh, it's it's very entertaining also if you uh, if you go over to our patreon page you can become a come out on film patreon and um uh, you can see a video of jack explaining the the plot of interstellar with with full with full arm waving grandiosity better than the film interstellar yeah let's not start that off you've already done about 20 minutes on on what what your problem is with interstellar so anyway so we're going to pick up from where we left off which is number five to number one but as i said if you haven't heard the first one please do go back and listen but just to refresh uh, everyone's memories uh, we'll just run down what we had so some far of the stupid choices that mark has made jack this isn't going to yeah. make things easier if you're just going to be petulant, okay? You have to, you have to just, <laughs> okay? So here we go. So at number 10 for me, following. And number 10 for me is The Dark Knight Rises. Number nine for me, Insomnia. Number nine for me is Interstellar. Number eight for me, Interstellar. So we're kind of on the same page. Number eight for me is Following. So again, everything was going quite well up until that point. Not too bad. And then I said at number seven... Dunkirk. Number seven for me is Insomnia. And then at number six for me, and this is where things really started to fall apart, The Dark Knight for me. (laughs) Honestly, I can't, I don't even know how to express my disappointment and my anger. (laughs) You're not angry, you're disappointed. I'm both. Number six for me is Batman Begins. And, and I and I would say the same thing. I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. It's like we've both we've both taken on the parental role. I'm not angry. I just think what you should do is just go away and think about what and have you've a done. big think. <laughs> well, we have done that. We have done exactly that. We've gone away and had a big think. So, you've had a moment to consider your mistake, yeah. and you, you're sticking with it. Okay. So at number five for me, Dark Knight Rises, which Jack you had at number ten. So we'll discuss that in just a moment. What's your number five? My number five is Memento. Okay, fine. So let's do The Dark Knight Rises. You had it at number 10. I want you to kick this off. Okay, fine. So I want to hear uh, what, you, what, you're, what you think the, the, the merits of this film are. Okay, fine. So here we go. I remember watching Dark Knight Rises and thinking, okay, this is now basically the conclusion to a trilogy that gave us the thing that Tim Burton had promised to do back in the days of Batman. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Tim Burton Batman coming out. Me and my friend, Tim Polcat, who is a, you know, he's a huge comic books fan. He went on to be a very, very successful uh, graphic artist. And, you know, it was all the time, you know, he'd always been a huge Tim Burton fan as well. Actually, he lived in a house that looked not unlike, um, you know, the, the Pee Wee Herman house. And he and I had, had so many conversations in the run up to the release of uh, Batman, the Tim Burton Batman, about what it was going to be. And originally, people forget this, it was going to be this R-rated, you know, dark, uh, you know, kind of Nietzschean, Frank Miller, all that stuff. And of course, it actually didn't turn out to be that at all. It turned out to be something much more playful, much more colourful. I have to say, I'm not a fan of the Tim Burton Batman. I think there are things in it that are interesting, but I, I just don't think it's great. I got to the it's end... The score, mostly. Yeah, I think there are bigger problems than the score, but 
no, 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 no. Sorry, I think the I think the score is great. That's my, I think the Batman. Oh, theme I see. Is fine, great. fine, fine. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Okay, so I got to the end of uh, Dark Knight Rises, and and two things. Firstly, um, two of the people sitting next to me were in tears, and I was I kind of understood why they were, and I then spent. 10 minutes afterwards, and again, we should say this at the beginning, Jack said this in the last podcast, this, this is spoiler-tastic, right? If you don't want to know about the ending of things, then, you know, stop listening. We're assuming that you've seen the movies already, okay? Um, I was really profoundly moved at the end of Dark Knight Rises, except I had to do a lot of thinking to myself about what the final shot in which Michael Caine's character sees um, uh, Bruce Wayne and he sees him at the table and then he doesn't see him. And in my mind, uh, and this will relate later on to inception. I, I have it in my head that at the end of it, the ultimate sacrifice is made and that that end is not, it's okay. It's all fine. It's not, it's not interstellar. It's not, it's okay. (laughs) You know, he came back out of the hole, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that I felt that the story had concluded. And considering the problems that I had had with The Dark Knight, which I, I admire greatly, but I don't love, for me, narratively, what Dark Knight Rises did was to pull it back. I remember all the stuff beforehand. I mean, there was all this kind of you know, stuff in the press about you know, Anne Hathaway was going to be a problem, and, and, and I think she really wasn't at all. I love the way the film looks. I like, the, I like how much it... Um, it basically rectified a lot of the issues that I'd had with Dark Knight. It obviously, it doesn't have Heath Ledger, which I know is a really, you know, a, a very big part of that film for you. What it does have is the the incredible visuals of Wally Fister. And I think that Fister's work on Dark Knight Rises is absolutely astonishing. I know that nobody um, thought that, well, nobody other than me, was particularly a fan of Wally Fister's Transcendence. But I remember, I mean, I, this, this is personal. I remember sitting in that cinema, watching the film, knowing the problems that I'd had with Dark Knight and thinking, I don't have those problems anymore. I've just watched a movie that was shot by the guy whose name I first came across when the good lady professor her indoors was researching a book about straight to video erotic thrillers and said, you know, these films may be shit, but this guy is really good. Mm-hmm. And... I, and I and on either side of me, I had people crying, and I thought, okay, you know, hats off to you. That is that is a real achievement. So okay, yeah, that's 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 what I mean. It is very it is very personal, but then I think all of these things are personal. All of it is. Look, I, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my opinion, but I'm also I want to respond to what you said first. Okay. Let's first talk about the ending, which you are just wrong about. Um, okay. You can interpret it however you want. Um, the, the the images aren't telling that story at all. Um, Batman does live at the end. Um, the the fantasy that Ma- Michael Caine has at the beginning of the movie when he says, I, "I take a trip out to France and I order this drink and I I hope I'll see you and know that you made it and you'll be okay." That is what happens at the end. Uh, and if you watch the details, Michael Caine gets his credit card out at the end to pay for the drink, sees Bruce Wayne, and then puts the credit card back in his wallet because he knows that Bruce Wayne's going to pick up the tab. That is what happens. It is not a dream. It is absolutely real. And the ending of the movie is that Batman gets away and leaves the mantle. The whole film is about anybody can be Batman. Anybody can wear that mask. You know, the introduction of that very famous thing that's now part of Spider-Verse. And he leaves it for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he rises and becomes the new, and we assume he will be the next Batman or Nightcrawler, sorry, not Nightcrawler, Nightwing or, or, or whatever he'll be. That is what happens. <laughs> and okay, I think two, to two, try two, and... Hang on, two things on this. Firstly, you're assuming, that Alfred wouldn't do a, you're assuming that Alfred wouldn't do a runner on a check, and I think that's basically... <laughs> uh, I think that's, that's just projection. You think it's Michael Caine. He wouldn't, you know, let's, be, let's be honest about this. He's, he's not above it. Secondly... It's all very well saying he takes his credit card out, he puts it back, therefore it's real. It, it, that's kind of, that's what I would describe as straight to the heart of the periphery film criticism. No, no you, you're, yes. you're remembering it weirdly. Like there is a, there's a moment no, when I'm they literally rem- nod at each other. I know, Jack, I know. I've seen the film not so long ago. I, rem- I know that they exchange that glance. I know that that happens. 
but it's like um what's an example of this uh you recently watched the exorcist and there is a moment in the exorcist in which reagan's head appears to go 360 degrees okay it doesn't halfway through the turn it cuts away to karis and we see karis's face and then the head turn completes and the reason that that mid-turn cutaways there is because Blatty said to Friedkin, this can't happen. It is not physically possible for her head to turn all the way round. And Friedkin said, well, it's not possible for her head to turn half the way round. In the novel and indeed in the film, when that first head turn happens, it's like, that's just slightly too far. That's just slightly too far because it's summoning up the ghost of Burke Dennings, right? All the way round, which only happened incidentally because they built the dummy and they figured out that they could do it, so why not do it? Blatty said, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. It has to be an illusion. And so you get the cutaway to Karis. Now, every, very few people I, I, I know seen the exit say her head didn't go all the way round. It didn't go all the way round because if it did, it would fall off. It didn't. And the cutaway to Karis tells you. And it's the fact that everything we're seeing we're seeing from his point of view. You're, th- that scene is his point of view. And, and whether, and I think, honestly, truthfully, I understand that I'm trying to reconcile the movie in my head, but I did reconcile it. And that's how I reconciled it. In fact, I, I, well, I, think, I think in order to reconcile it, you're, you're ignoring other factors to try and tell a story that I don't think Nolan is telling. Well, the only and factor I'm ignoring is... It's not just like that's the scene. Like, that, 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 that's not the only thing that's happening. It's another one of Nolan's cross-cutting sequences. And he during says, that moment... He says at the beginning, have, I, he says at the beginning I have this, this dream of doing this thing. And then he... Yeah, and then, but and then in that moment it's cross cut between other things as well. And in that moment, you have somebody in a factory saying the autopilot was fixed. What's the name on it? Bruce Wayne. Like, yeah, like, it no, just, no, no, it, I know, it, it, I know, I know because I think you can read it either way. And I actually, I think that what we're demonstrating is that you can read it either way. You genuinely, I mean, you may be reading. But I also think that brain. you're comparing it to the exorcist, which is like someone seeing her, a horrific thing that they, that they, and they think they're seeing something horrible and their mind is being bent in certain ways. But I don't think that that's what's happening in the dark Knight rises. I think Michael Caine is, is saying, I have this dream of something happening. Like I want this for you. And that is, that is their way of showing Bruce Wayne got the thing that Michael Caine always thought he deserved, which was okay. just to well, have look, a, normal, t- a okay. normal life. Well, in my version of the film, he's dead at the end of it. And I don't want Christopher Nolan or anyone else to tell me whether he is or not. I wish, I wish he was dead. That would have been, a, that would have been, uh, that moment for me is, is, is over the, over the top corny and uh, yeah. And, and, and it fits with the rest of the film. Cause I think the rest of the movie just personally as well. Like, remember when I, when these came out, when the Dark Knight came out, I was very quickly, right? You've seen Interstellar, right? You know what Nolan's <laughs> capable of. If that moment was real, it, there wouldn't have been a glance. He would have come over and sat down with him and gone, Alfred, how are you doing? It's great to see you. Now I've got to go. That's what would have happened. No, the interstellar version of that ending would have been, he came over, he picked up the tab, he gave him a tip, he bought him a coat. He said, I've really missed you. Just Shame because with, he did something Matthew Mahogany over the top and, in Interstellar. And, you know, and his daughter. Doesn't mean anyway, that he doesn't understand. Clear, he, I'm he with her. It's all worked out story. fine. It's great. Don't have to put on the rubber suit anymore. Incidentally, Michael Keaton, no chin. Um, anyway, I'm off to go and live a normal life. Bye. Mr. Wayne's will was not amended to reflect his more modest estate. Nonetheless, there are considerable assets to dispose of. The contents of the house are to be sold to settle the estate's accounts, and the remainder is left in its entirety to Alfred J. Pennyworth. The house and grounds are left to the city of Gotham on condition that they never be demolished, altered, or otherwise interfered with. That they shall be used for one purpose and one purpose only. The housing and care of the city's at-risk and orphan children. And my clerk can help anyone with the smaller correspondences and instructions. Blake, John. Nothing here. I try my legal name. You should use your full name. I like that name. Robin. Thanks. Why are we even worrying about the stabilization software? This entire autopilot system is completely obsolete. Please, I just need to know what I could have done to fix it. But, Mr. Fox, it's already been fixed. Software patch, six months ago. 
Check the ID on the bench. Bruce Wayne. Any news on the missing item? Not yet. We better leave no stone unturned. We can't leave a string of pearls on the manifest as lost. So the rest of the film feels to me like the most generic. Uh, well, actually, first of all, re let's talk about it. Like, remember when I saw this trilogy? So the first time I, I saw Batman Begins, I must have been about 13, I think, when it came out, 2005, 13 yep. years old. And when I watched it, I watched it on a bootleg DVD that somebody got for me. I watched it and it takes 40, 50 minutes for him to become Batman. And I yeah. watched it and was like, what's this? Because my, in my head, Batman was Batman and Robin. Like the 90s yeah, Batman yeah. was what Batman was. So I was watching it being like, this isn't a Batman film. And I remember being really annoyed by it. And then in 2008, when in the lead up to the, uh, the Dark Knight, I, that's when I started to like really start paying attention to cinema and being interested in the trailers and the marketing. And there was a huge marketing campaign for the Dark Knight that I was watching and kind of involved with as much as I could from Nottingham. Um, and when I saw Batman Begins again, when I was uh, 16, leading up to the, the, the Dark Knight, I was blown away by it. I remember talking yeah, to my friend too. Tim, who me and him were like, you know, huge comic book nerds and we found each other on the internet and we sort of bonding over things like that and i was like oh the ending is oh it's incredible and so brilliant maybe the best comic book movie i've ever seen then the dark knight i saw when i was 16 and then the dark knight rises i saw when i was 18 i must have been 18 19 something like that so these are like formative years for me when it comes to cinema and i remember the first time i saw the dark knight rises that ending the the, the rising up and i mean even the beginning and the plane leading up to the ending, I was in my cinema seat and I felt like I was shaking and I was like stunned, but I also couldn't believe to, I, I was like, that was incredible. I, I thought it was the perfect ending to the trilogy. I thought they couldn't have done it any better, um, especially dealing with the death of Heath Ledger. But actually on rewatch and comparing it to The Dark Knight, which we will talk about a lot later, yeah. I think that the Dark Knight, the, I, I feel similar to the Dark Knight, the way that you feel about The Exorcist, is that you can pull it apart as much as you want. You can look at the individual pieces. You can analyze it from every which way, which people have done. You can look at it as a post 9-11 film. You can look at it as the Joker used to be in, you know, he's a war veteran. Um, you can look at it from the, a psychological point of view of Carl Jung's ego and the shadow self, which I want to talk about more when we talk about The Dark Knight. And The Dark Knight Rises, the, the, as, as soon as you start to think about it, it loses all, all, all weight. It, it just becomes a stupid mess. And actually, I think the filmmaking in it is some of the clunkiest that Nolan's ever done. And and just some of the some of the plot. Bane going, I have a letter here from James Gordon, and I want to go like, how am I supposed to know that's real? Like it says he likes to drink piss. <laughs> <laughs> Make it up, like Bane. Like I, I don't believe you. I signed. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I, I don't, and I think that Tom Hardy is incredible in it. I think he's unrecognizable. I think that the the, the twist in the story that he wasn't the the uh, the kid in the pit, but it was it was Talia Al Ghul. But yeah. I also think that compared to storytelling that Nolan does in Inception, which is that at the beginning of Inception, he lets you in on the team. He shows you that we're this what you're seeing is in a dream, and then he shows you that we are actually in a dream within a dream but the character doesn't know that yet. So you're on the team. You're not on the, you're not on the target. You know what I mean? It's not going, oh, it's a dream again. It's not letting you know the twist. Talia Al Ghul's twist, he should have let us know. Like it, it, he should have known that we were smart enough to figure that out in the same way that we were going to figure out in Inception. This is another dream. He know, he, in Inception, sorry, and in, in The Dark Knight Rises, it feels like we are one step ahead of him the entire time. Um, and all the dialogue in it, there's nothing interesting. There's nothing poignant. It feels to me like the most typical movie dialogue. Everybody speaks in action cliches. And the more you watch, I, I keep, I go back to it just because I'm a fan of Batman and there are merits to it. Like there are in every Chris Nolan movie. We, you know, I, I feel that way about all of them. But every time I watch it, I end up yelling at the screen and being like, what are you doing here? What's this about? Why does, why does Anne Hathaway speak exclusively in sexual puns? Like, what, what's going on? Like, what happened to the, to the thoughtful way that you approached The Dark Knight? Like, the, 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 the themes that you were playing with. What happened? And I think it was rushed. I think that they had to figure out what they were doing because, because they couldn't bring Joker back. Especially because at the end of The Dark Knight, there is obviously a hint in terms of, like, 
actual superficial storytelling that we're destined to do this forever. Our, our battle will go on forever. But also that obviously is an internal thing, an internal battle, but that is absolutely setting up. We're not done. But then they had, and then they made the choice to never bring up the Joker and they, and they felt like they had to sort of wrestle their way yeah, into making it, a trilogy. Is, I think there's something quite interesting about the fact that the, that the narrative arc of, um, of the three movies is Joker doesn't die, but Batman does. I don't know why that means anything, though. Well, you, you think he doesn't, so that's why it doesn't... It doesn't I don't think that. he does. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That even if you do interpret it that way, which I think is, frankly, ludicrous, because um, I think that, that that's you ignoring major things within the film in order to tell yourself that story. But okay. I don't okay. think that... that even, either, either way, I don't think it means anything. I like the idea that Bruce Wayne is able to find peace, but I just don't... I don't think that the story of The Dark Knight Rises holds up to scrutiny. I think it's probably entertaining on a first watch. I know it was when I watched it. I was shaken by it. But I think it's not worth revisiting. And I really value a rewatch in movies, especially okay. with Nolan. I think the more that you watch his stuff, the more you can pull out of it. Um, and I don't think there's anything in here that's interesting enough um, to, to, to scrutinize. Okay, well, <clears throat> to quote Will Ferrell, uh, agree to differ. Um, your, number five <laughs> is, your number five is Memento, right? Yep. My number four is Memento. And okay. what's your number four? My number four is The Prestige. Okay. So let's do Memento. It's interesting that we've both got it in our, in our top five. Um, I remember seeing Memento. Actually, funnily enough, I, had to do, I did an introduction for Memento some years ago. There was some campaign and they were putting um, double bills into cinemas. And I, I recorded a, a short introduction for it. And I went back and, and watched it again. I'd seen it when it first came out. So I'd seen it a few times. I think well, I'd seen it in the cinema. And then I'd seen it again on, on DVD. And what really impressed me about it, when I saw it in the cinema, I thought of it almost exclusively narratively. I thought what I love is how clever the, the narrative is. I love the fact that, you know, it's a story told in reverse, that it's, you know, it's, it, it's a film about amnesia in which it's a film that actually forgets itself. And I, you know, I love that. I've always, I've, I've always, you know, had a kind of fascination with that thing about memory and knowing and not knowing and anticipation and deja vu. That's the, you know, so I, I saw it in the cinema and I remembered it almost entirely narratively. And then I saw it on DVD and I was astonished by how visual it is and how much I hadn't noticed that when it was in the cinema. And I think the remarkable thing about it is for a film that is as visually rich as Memento is, the first time I saw it, I didn't think about how visually rich it was. And I think that one of the things that's happening in our discussion about Nolan is I am more impressed by v something that works visually than you are. A lot of the problems that you have with the, with, with the Nolan films that you're not crazy about, and we say this incidentally in the context of the fact that I don't think any of the Nolan films are bad. I think, no. I think, it's, I think you know, Tarantino would love to have those 10 films. Um, I think that a lot of the, the things that you're talking about are narrative dialogue. And I agree that actually one of the things that perhaps isn't Nolan's strength is that, you know, there are, that he is given to moments in which the narrative and the dialogue are functional. But I think as a, as a cinema of experience, and this is what, you know, things like Interstellar and all his work with Wally Pfister and Dunkirk, these are experiential movies what I was surprised by is I hadn't noticed how cinematic Memento was until I saw it not on a cinema screen. And I thought that was really, it said something about the narrative of it. I mean, obviously it's based on Memento Mori by Jonathan Nolan with whom he would then collaborate or take on the, the production, as you mentioned before, in terms of Interstellar, which started as another script that Jonathan Nolan was involved in. But I was just, I just really liked the fact that when I saw it in the cinema, I thought about the narrative. And when I saw it on DVD, I thought about the visuals. So it was like, whenever I was watching it, I was slightly out of sync with the environment in which I was watching it, which actually seems perfect for that film. Are you sure you want this? My wife deserves vengeance. Do not trust her. She's gonna use you to protect herself. I think someone's been trying to get me to kill the wrong guy. You can question everything. You can never know anything for sure. Teddy, don't believe his lies. You wander around playing detective. Well, maybe you should start investigating yourself. Who did this to you? You did. I want my life! 
Why are you asking me? I can't remember what I've done. I have no short-term memory. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. The next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. <laughs> I don't even know if I've met you before. I've told you this before, haven't I? I think there was a time when I watched Memento that I would have called it the best film I've ever seen because <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Um, and it, it is the start of Nolan being like, look at all the clever shit I can do. Yeah. Um, and hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Make you follow it and make you understand it and care about what's going on. And I, and I agree that I think some of the problems I have with Nolan's, I think, weaker work is that he doesn't disguise the exposition and the, the poor story with interesting or emotional stuff, which I think he does in his better films. So I don't, I almost, I almost resent being like shown something beautiful. And then in the next instance, I'm reminded, oh yeah, this is stupid. Yeah. Whereas I mean, actually, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm calling to mind the thing that you, that you mentioned in terms of Interstellar, which is the, you know, they're in space and he goes, just explain to me how black holes work again. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you didn't have this conversation before you got on the ship. The simple yeah, that, punching, that, the I punching think that functionality. Piece, yeah. Like, you're having that <laughs> conversation now? <laughs> As we're approaching the black hole. It's like a pilot being like, how, so how do I take off again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's things like that. And I think, that, I think that Inception, if you were to like pull it apart and it wasn't as emotional and as interesting as it was, you would you would find all the stupidity. If actually, if you read the script of Inception, which I have done, it reads incredibly functionally, and you can tell that the way the performance of, the performers have taken that dialogue, they've enhanced it with the way that they. Right. I don't I, I don't want to discredit Nolan, like the way he's directed scenes, he's directed exposition disguised as emotion, which is genius. I think that that is. I think that that's not a criticism at all. I think that's no, no. absolutely fantastic, especially for something as huge as Inception. I think that Memento is the start of stuff like that. Um, it's an incredibly emotional film, another dead wife. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, the, the backward storytelling is, is yeah, with, with intercut with the black and white sequences, which are in order. And I've seen him as well explain the shoe horse timeline of it. Like it's so crazy that he came up with that. And, and, I, and I agree as well that the work of Wally Pfister is greatly missed. Um, I think that he's incredible. And the collaboration that Nolan has with people like Wally Pfister and his editor Lee Smith, and his you know collaboration with Hans Zimmer, and to a lesser extent James Newton Howard, and I, I, I think that is what makes that period of Nolan, uh, especially um, sort of late two thousands into sort of nowish time, so special. And Memento just feels like separate to that stuff, mm -hmm. but it feels like it's the beginning of all of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Although yeah, I, I don't even know. I, Although, although I think that we can still argue, as we did before, that following is quite literally the beginning and also the beginning yeah. because so much of what's then going to be teased out is in following. Um, I mean, it, you know, you said this before, you can, you can look at any one of Nolan's films, no matter what sort of left turns they may take, they are of a piece. They are, you know, mm. they are having a discussion about what cinema and storytelling and time and memory. And this, this is particularly uh, important for me because uh, for me, 
I think that the cinema uh, mirrors memory. I think that's why cinema is, you know, this is why the David Lynch thing about, you know, we live inside a dream. Cinema is like memory. There's an old, old theory that when you watch a moving image, you know, moving images has got edits in them. And you think, well, how does the human brain understand that? Because when you look around the world, you, do, you don't see edits, you see a continuous shot. Okay. I mean, okay. You, you know, your eyes are scanning, but you don't see How is it that we understand edited film instinctively? And the we reason blink. we do is because it's, because it's, that's what memory feels like. Film is mm. closest to the, to the process of memory than, than almost any other art form, I think. Um, and I think that's why Nolan dealing with memory and the loss of it, and time and the manipulation of it is so... Yeah, and I know. think as well, the thing that sticks with me over time about Memento, and I think Nolan is really, really good at manipulating how we experience cinema in a personal way. Like, I think Dreams is another great way of doing that, and mm -hmm. <laughs> Inception just doesn't care about the technology and all the rest of it. Anyway, we'll get onto that in a, in yeah. a bit. Okay. But Memento, the thing that sticks with me about that is that on, on some level, it's a film about how people lie to themselves yeah. to, to be happy. Um, and yeah. it's heartbreaking. It's one of the, I think it's one of the most melancholic of Nolan's films. Like it, it literally finishes on the note of I'm going to keep lying to myself. And this is a loop that's going to keep going round and round and round yeah, because yeah. he thinks that, I mean, it's the classic revenge thing. Like when you get the killer, you think you'll be happy, but you won't because you haven't dealt with stuff, something in your head. And it's about how people don't deal with that stuff taken to the degree of, I want to find my wife's killer. Um, yeah. and I will keep, going on that journey until I die because I, that's I remember, all I know. I remember reading a review of um, Gaspar Noe's Irreversible when somebody said it's a film with a happy ending when you play it backwards because obviously Irreversible mm. plays backwards but it was that, that lovely idea that it's, on, it's only a happy ending if it goes backwards and Memento is that weird thing about... Um, so whenever you say this, I end up I end up sounding like uh, David St. Hubbins in Spinal Tap. You say, "What is the end?" And I say, "Yes, but what is our?" You know, I know that's what it sounds like, but but you know, I, that that stuff I love. Moving on to number three. So my number three is the title you've already brought up, is Batman Begins. So we're into the top three now, and I have Batman Begins as number three in my top three. What do you have? I have Dunkirk. Okay. So which? So we've now both cited both of those movies. Should, yes. Should, should, we do, should I do Batman Begins first, and then we'll do Dunkirk? Go for it, are, yeah. Batman Begins was my number six. Okay. I love Batman Begins and I kind of, I can tell you exactly why I remember going to see the preview of Batman Begins in the, uh, Od the, the Odeon of the View in uh, Leicester Square. And I went to see it with Nigel Floyd and I, you know, I was somebody who had a, I'm, I've never been a huge comic books fan. I'm not, you know, I'm, as I said, I was very good friends with Tim Polk, good friends with Tim Polcat, who knew a huge amount about comics. And an awful lot of people who are into comics and graphic novels know an awful lot about comics and graphic novels. So I've always been nothing but a kind of, you know, a, a dilettante, an outsider and all that. But I remember going through that whole thing of, um, you know, the Tim Burton Batman and being very, very disappointed by the fact that it was, it was as, as vanilla as it ended up being. And then I remember seeing uh, Batman Begins and, you know, being a fan of Nolan and, uh, you know, having high expectations, high expectations, but not, I hadn't. So I, I'm, I'm interested as well, because I obviously wasn't lucid <laughs> at this point. So um, was there an anticipation when Batman Begins was coming out of like, it's the guy who did Memento is doing Batman Begins. You know, like, was there that type of discussion? Okay. Literally what happened was as I was walking into the cinema, I was talking, we weren't going in with particularly big expectations. And as I was walking in, we had exactly that discussion. It's Christopher Nolan, you know, it's the guy who made, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, see what you'll do with it, you know, because we'd, we'd seen a huge bunch of, uh, uh, you know, uh, superhero movies, comic book movies at that point, And many of them weren't very good. And many of the kind of incarn previous incarnations of Batman were, were very, very not good. Um, so literally as we were walking in, there was, I mean, I didn't wake up that morning and think I'm going to see Batman begins. I woke up that morning and looked, I had four films that I had to see, and that was one of them. And then I just happened to have met Nigel at the door and we were walking in and I said, Oh, it's, you know, it's Christopher Nolan. It's the guy who, you know, did that thing. It's interesting, you know, blah, blah. And we sat down and we were on the left-hand side, a very nice sight line, which was lovely. Nobody's head in the way, you know, and the film played out and I just remember going, Oh my 
God. And at the end of the film, I turned to Nigel and said, that is the most expensive art house movie I have ever seen. I cannot believe that whatever it was, is a hundred something million dollars. I cannot mm. believe that he got this. He basically bamboozled the studio into giving him a hundred and something million dollars to make an, a, an absolutely brilliant, obscure, weirdy, independent art movie that just happens to take place on the biggest canvas imaginable. And I, there are so few moments that I can think of in, in, um, you know, recent memory, I mean, recent, relatively recent memory in which I have just been just astonished by what somebody has managed to achieve. And, and I'll never forget that with Batman Begins. I just, I watch the same as you. I mean, first it's not, he's not Batman for such a long time. And then he is Batman and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you, I mean, at the beginning you kind of think it's, you know, this is interesting. It's like a sort of low key, where's it go? You know, and then it, and then it, and I just, I, I was just, I almost felt like standing up and applauding and going, I can't, I cannot believe that you've managed to, it's the biggest art house movie I ever saw. He's here. What do we do? What anyone does when a prowler comes around. Call the police. You want the cops here? At this point, they can't stop us. But the Batman has a talent for disruption. Pours him outside, the police will take him down. Go. What about her? Oh, she hasn't got long. I give her a concentrated dose. The mind can only take so much. Now, go. The things they say about him. Can he really fly? I heard he can disappear. Well, we'll find out. Won't we? Yeah, I think that um, it's it's another example. It's it kind of comparable to Inception, where it's a character study disguised as something else. I I I really like Batman Begins. I just find myself gravitating to it less and less, um, and so I it just ended up being lower down the list. But I completely agree with everything that you've said. I think it nails that non-linear way of finding out who Bruce Wayne is and how that's affected his psyche. Um, and it's so, it's so thematically rich. Like, you know, all of them have been almost like memed to this point where Batman Begins is about fear and the Dark Knight is about chaos and the Dark Knight Rises is about power and control. But that first one is, is, is leaning so hard into that, into that theme and showing you, it's like unpicking Bruce Wayne in a way that you've never, and yeah. since never really seen to that level. Yeah. Um, like it's really focusing in on him. But then it also nails all the beautiful spectacle. Like for me, I still get goosebumps at the end when they turn over that Joker card and he's like, I'll look into it. Like to me, that, that yeah, is yeah, like, yeah. ooh, yeah. like oh, it's building the world as well as it's looking at its characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really, really good. There are, there are things in it that we talked about on one of the earliest podcasts we ever did where it sticks out to me that the, um, the big bad in it uh, is you know a bomb that's going to go off and it you know and, and it's, it's just it, all that stuff sticks out a little bit like oh we need we need something functional to 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 make <laughs> yeah. the story work but uh, you know I, I think yeah, those but, are like you know, small but, part but, but you know but a MacGuffin is a MacGuffin it's like it, it's not yeah. about that is it it's that's just the thing that's moving everything forward it is it is literally it's the Hitchcock I'm not really bothered about that I'm bothered about all this other stuff which actually is something that then comes up in the ferry sequence in, in, in Dark Knight, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay, so at number three, you had Dunkirk. Uh, Dunkirk. I had Dunkirk at uh, number... Where did I have Dunkirk? Uh, let me have, I had a num number seven, okay? And I wish I should begin by saying once again, just because it's number seven in the Chris Nolan bag, it doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means that when well, I'm trying to order them. So you go first on Dunkirk. So I rewatched Dunkirk yesterday and I'm glad I did because I don't know where I would, where it would have ended up if I hadn't rewatched it. Um, it's, 
the shortest of of all of Nolan's films by a country mile, uh, like at ninety minutes. And I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Nolan for for this movie. I remember waking up that morning because there was yeah. a there was a conversation about whether or not I was going to be interviewing him or not. And then when it was confirmed, I got an email that day being like, "Do you want to see Dunkirk today or tomorrow?" And I was like, "Oh my god!" Like I, I did. I was so excited about seeing this new Nolan film, and I remember seeing it. it was a, I wasn't allowed to bring anybody with me. It was basically scattered cinema like very very few people were there i sat in the science museum in the imax which is one of my favorite imaxes yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in london it's a great screen it's good size but i sat there and i, I remember as well like hearing the, the the tick of the of the uh of the projector turning on as as all the lights went down before that uh before the film started and then when it in that opening shot the calm of all the uh all the letters falling from the from the sky and then that first gunshot hitting in that IMAX screen, yeah. and I'd never heard anything so scary. And immediately, I felt like I was yeah. in their subjective yeah. um, perspective, and got to speak to Nolan about it. And 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 he, it seemed like he was really like connected to the story, but also like was thinking, how can I tell this film like it's the third act of another film that I made? Like he almost like jumped into the third act and just went, let's go from here and see if it works. And I think there's no other filmmaker alive who, number one, would get the opportunity to do that, just to go to a studio and go, I'm going to experiment with this now. Give me $200 million. That's insane. And, and that there's no... Like, and you know, Tom Hardy maybe is the most named. Well, Harry Styles is really, really famous, but he's barely in it. But Tom <laughs> Hardy's like the biggest actor, and his face is all the way covered up. Um, awesome yeah, barely any dialogue. Now the next yeah. film we've got for you, Tom. You're actually you have a paper bag <laughs> over your head. It's it's a remake of uh, Up Your I'll Alley, the Linda Blair film starring <laughs> the unknown comedian. You can be great. <laughs> I'm I, on on a technical level. I'm impressed that he's he's able to make a film that has dogfights makes sense because I think planes. Yeah, yeah just don't really work in cinema for me. Like, especially when planes are flying, cause it's just against <laughs> plane, nothing. It's the geography really doesn't really, <laughs> like, like plane the fights. Academy of motion, motion pictures. <laughs> now you... I'm sorry, but right, apparently planes don't work in movies. So if you could just go back to the very first uh, best picture winners and take out the, yes. The ones with the one with the, pl yes, that's, <laughs> Jesus. Because Jack Howard said so. don't work in movies. No, you know what I mean? Like plain, 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 like fighting with planes doesn't really, like if you, if you think about it, when was the last time you saw a plane fight and we're like, that was, I knew exactly what was going on there. Well, Dunkirk. If you, if you rewatch well, Dunkirk is the last yeah, of the yeah, lot. Yeah. Where I yeah. really was going, but you know. That's what I mean. You watch Dunkirk and it, he makes it make ago. sense. It's like, you know, it's like, it's not that <laughs> long ago. I'm using Dunkirk as a good suit. example. Yeah, okay. I'm I'm using Dunkirk as the example of that's the movie that made me go oh my god like he made I understood who was who I understand where they are in relation to each other like he makes it make sense whereas if you watch Top Gun or any other film that has like a plane fight in it you're watching it being like yeah there's planes flying around I'm assuming that oh I don't know which one's the good but like it's difficult yeah, but, to follow because there's no yeah, sense of geography yeah. there's no sense yeah, of the space the, they're the just against a flat sky the problem with Top Gun is there's nothing to do. I mean, the problem with Top Gun is it's a pop video that happens to have some planes in it. You know, it's like there was no <laughs> point in Top Gun where they sat down and went, let's really, really work out the geography of this. What they really went was, how's Tom looking? How is Tom looking? How is that? The, you know, how is it? <laughs> yeah. But you know what I'm saying? No, I do. I mean, like, I film. You film I, a plane against a flat background and you don't know where it is. No, like that. And, I think, and Nolan does I think that. One, one of the most astonishing things about Dunkirk is exactly that you, that you get those sense of those dogfight scenes. And it's partly to do with the, I mean, the film is available in three different, you know, ratios and versions. Um, mm. And in the, in the, certainly in the, in the largest incarnation, you get sky and with you can actually map out exactly where everything is on it. I mean, no, I think that is that that is an astonishing feat. I think visually, it is it is quite astonishing. You mentioned very briefly that um, you know Harry Styles is probably more uh, you know the, the most famous person in the movie. There are for me some issue. I mean, I the thing I love is I love the the triple time thing. I think the, the way in which the three yeah, times I think that's genius. And also, what's genius about it is that you can understand it. I love the fact that Nolan describing it said it was virtual reality without the goggles. What he meant was 
you look at that, you are completely immersed in the image and particularly in the sequences that you're talking about, the dogfight sequences, that's absolutely true. There is also, and this has come up before, you know, the, the Chris Nolan slightly tin ear for a script because we do have Harry Styles saying, oh, he's got an accent thicker than sauerkraut sauce. Go blimey. And that is kind of, you know, you think anybody else would have just gone, yeah, no. No, we 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 don't. We actually don't need the bloke from One Direction to do a thing about having an accent thicker than sauerkraut sauce. We were perfectly fine. And and again, that is, I think that there's been more than one occasion on which, in the case of Nolan, less is more when it comes to dialogue. You know, it's just like you don't just go back to the thing with the with the Spitfire. Yeah, is, not only is this his shortest film, I think it's also, with that being its shortest, in contrast to that, I think it's also one of his most patient films. Mm-hmm. Like he really lets things hold. And, yeah. uh, you know, his, his script for it was only 76 pages. And I know that because I checked when I was talking to him. I said, I heard the script was only 75 pages. And he went, 76. Oh, Six. sorry. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, like he wanted to let the imagery breathe a lot. And I, I mean, to, the fact that I've, been, I've talked about it a lot, the cross-cutting action, the intertwined sequences that he does. This is this is a film that is one of those for the entire 90 minutes that it runs for. And I think when you do that with this on a larger scale, you get these, obviously you get glimpses into the future and into the past without actually doing time travel, which is already interesting. And then you get these beautiful moments of synchronization between scenes that have nothing to do with each other. So you yeah. have like the rhyming scenes where the pilot, is dry, you know when he's when he's waving not drowning which is sorry drowning not waving which I yeah, think yeah. is incredible and it, I love that bit and then you later then see he's drowning at the same time we're intercut with the soldiers who are in the boat who are drowning and they have nothing to to do with each other but the poetry of the imagery just rhymes yeah. so beautifully and makes it really emotional and then speaking of the emotion I think that this movie you know it's brimming with emotion for people anyway because it's just such an emotional real thing that happened but the moment the boats arrive. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm in tears. And then the moment as well, at the end, something I'd never really seen before in a story is that warped perception the soldiers have when, when Harry Styles is like, they're going to be spitting at us in the streets. And the, the blind man, which I think is on the nose, but it's fine. The blind man who doesn't look at him and he doesn't know that he's blind. And he's mm. just, he just has this feeling that we failed. We, we, you know, yeah. we, we should be ashamed of ourselves. And then that elation at the end when they're seeing how proud everybody is you survived and that's enough i i I find it incredibly emotional she'll fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air we shall defend our island whatever the cost may be we shall defend our island whatever the cost may be we shall fight on the beaches we shall fight on the landing grounds we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Somebody complained um, uh, in a uh, either letter to a newspaper, or that, and they said, um, I'd just like to say, when I was watching Dunkirk, in the scene in which the soldiers are on the train returning, the livery on the train is actually incorrect. Uh, that particular livery was not oh, used in that God. year. And it, and it literally <laughs> it was an example of, for fuck's sake, you're looking at yeah. the lip. It's like, no, I don't care if they're in a DeLorean. It's gonna, you know, it, I'm not bothered by that. I'm. This is this is right now. This also, I think not. I think as well, like on the details of it. I think some of the way that the Germans' planes were were designed was not at the was not right for the time. But Nolan was like, well, I need people to be able to distinguish between good and bad. It's like that, that's all I care about. Yes. And and because you know what, it's a film. It's actually not real. It's a drama. It's not real. And, and it's not real. And uh, that's an actor. That's Tom Hardy. Uh, he, he took the thing <laughs> off. You'd be able to see. That's that Michael Caine in his ear. It's not everybody okay. had Michael Caine in their ear when they're in a that's plane. The, that's the guy from One Direction who I'm pretty sure wasn't in World War II. But other than that, <laughs> no, that's perfectly fine. I, I love the fact that 
Nolan didn't, well, he claims to not have known who Harry Styles was before casting him. And I just love yeah. the fact that. That's entirely possible. I just love that. Yeah, it's I think it is. I think, it's, I think it's absolutely the truth. David Lynch said that when he cast um, uh, Laura Dern and uh, Diane Lane in, um, in uh, um, uh, Wild at Heart and Diane Ladd plays her mother, and there's a bit when, when apparently David Lynch said to, to uh, Laura Dern, you know, it's amazing, you know, she, she really, you know, she really looks like your mother. And, and uh, Laura Dern went, she is my mother. That's what <laughs> David Lynch said he didn't know. He said he didn't know that that was, and he said, he's going, it's amazing. They really look like mother and daughter. It's, it's incredible. And know? he probably found a way to make it. <laughs> like, right. I'm, so good at, I'm, I'm really good at casting. <laughs> it's genius. About them. She went, well, she looks, because she is my mom. Anyway, Jack, look. <laughs> I'm just looking at this clock and I realize that we've we've talked for 45 minutes and we okay. still we've still we've got the top uh, top two to do and I think they're going to be biggie so I'm going to make a radical suggestion which is that we break this into a third podcast. Um oh, how do you feel about that because decision. we've got two and one and there are the ones that we haven't talked about yet are biggies. Thanks ever so much for listening to this podcast, um, which has gone on for longer than we thought. Uh, we thought it was going to be one. Turns out to be a trilogy. You know, this is what happened with Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings, right? Or, or The Hobbit, right? <laughs> he said it was going to be like one, then it was going to be two, then it was seven, and uh, whatever. Okay, and we're so, going to get the same criticisms as well. People are going to be like, it could have been two. I know, it could have been. It could have been. You complain about people going on. You could easily have done it in one if you just cut it down. But, you know, hey, live with your mistakes. Jack, I'll see you really soon. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.